You know, if you've checked our website uh, or the church app, you've noticed that there's a theme for the new year on there, and it says this, same God, new year. Boy, both of those sound wonderful, don't they? It's got underneath Hebrews 10.23 in the New Living Translation, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise, and he can. It's a new year, and it's an important year. and It's a year before us that we can do much for the kingdom of God. God will do much for us as we are faithful to him. Last week we looked at a passage of scripture over in Isaiah chapter 14 talking about Lucifer. And it's an unusual passage there. If you read it, 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 it it's just uh, one that's kind of strange and creepy. But it's one that tells the truth about not only the fall of, of Lucifer, but it's referring, Isaiah is referring to the fall of the king of Babylon, which I think is remarkable. And I mentioned last week that, that George Barna had released some stats not long ago that only 41% of all adults surveyed in church believe the Bible is accurate. 40% uh, roughly believed that Christ was sinless and just 27% believed Satan really existed. And that'll shake you when you think about that. These are mainline churches. We've fallen away from what we believed, and that's terrifying. Last week we considered Lucifer, and this is kind of funny. He's a spirit, albeit supreme evil. The name Lucifer was referring to the king of Babylon there in that uh, passage that we just read in Isaiah, who was a man. And today we're going to look at Jezebel. And Jezebel was a real person. She was the queen beside the king Ahab over the northern kingdom of Israel. What's so amazing, though, is the passage we're looking at in Revelation is using the euphemism of, of, of Jezebel to refer to a woman who is not named there. Now, I want you to remember this. The Jezebel spirit is always a spirit of control and manipulation. It's amazing if you read Scripture, and, and I read through the Bible at least twice a year. When I was first... Um, saved and, and, and had a lot of free time because I was, I was just working while I was in high school, I read through the Bible five times a year. I was challenged to do that by a Christian friend, and I'm so thankful because even now as my brain cells, I, I hear them moment by moment depleting and disappearing and dissipating. I can still go to a passage when I hear a name a date or an event, and I'm so thankful for that, and I continue to read through Scripture every morning uh, for an hour. I do nothing but read Scripture before I pray, and it makes a huge difference. It's amazing that in Scripture, and especially in the passage in, in the book of Galatians, the only control that's endorsed by God for humanity is self-control. The fruit of the Spirit Self-control was so important, and we've got to remember the sense of that in our own life. If you want to control everything around you, God help you, because you won't be able to do it. You'll be, as we say, herding cats the rest of your life. It just, you can't do that. 
But the control we need to worry about is self-control of our own life and our own destiny, of our thoughts and and our passions. That's where self-control really matters. God purposes to dethrone every believer from the center of their own life and to place the Holy Spirit of God there. We are to be unspotted by the work of the flesh and unwrinkled by self-will, untouched by that even though it's there. Blatant self-centeredness and selfishness are being dealt with by the Holy Spirit daily. And I promise you, of the three that we have to fear in our Christian walk, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the one that you will do battle with the most and you will struggle with more often than not is the flesh. You can separate yourself from the world Satan is, is, you know, he's pretty particular who he goes after. But the flesh we struggle with. Remember, Jesus was on earth not to carry out his will, but to fulfill the will of his Father. And even he taught by that, that we don't put ourselves in the center of our world. Now, the fourth church here that's spoken of, of the seven churches in Revelation, is Thyatira. I want to let you know a little bit about Thyatira. It's an unusual church because it's very small. Thyatira is not a big community at all. Uh, in fact, the only business they had there was a trade, and that was because somebody in the town figured out how to take these, these strange shellfish and a plant and put them together and make purple dye. And that made that place rich. And if you remember, there was a woman there by the name of Lydia, And Lydia was a Christian, and she became prosperous there because of that. Now, leading up to this church, there are several others mentioned. The first church is Ephesus, and Ephesus is a church. They they were testing the teachers there. It was talking about when you lose your love for Jesus, you begin to love the world, and if you love Jesus, you won't love the world. And that was the issue with the Christians in Ephesus. They wanted to be in the church, but they also wanted to thoroughly enjoy and love and lavish themselves with the things of the world. And God warned them about that. The second church was Smyrna. And Smyrna, the Spirit of God spoke to them about holding fast and enduring great suffering for the sake of the Lord. They were called to do that. And then Pergamum. Even though they're dwelling on what they call Satan's throne, they were holding fast to their faith, but they had a problem with compromising their morals. They were in church, they were active there, they were you know, bringing people into the church, but as they went out in the world, they brought some of the world back with them. And they were warned about that. And then Thyatira. Thyatira was unusual for a lot of things. But... Strangely enough, they got into pagan worship there. And it's kind of frightening what had happened to the people there. They worshipped Apollo and Artemis, Diana. Uh, It was a place where people would come and and celebrate during the, the pagan feast. But Jesus brings his salutation to them and warns them about judgment. When he refers to God having eyes of flame, he's talking about eyes of judgment. 
They can discern and can see. And he talked about feet that are as burnished bronze. He was speaking of the, the power and the establishment of God himself with them. But they had a problem there. Faith wasn't their problem. Ministry wasn't their problem. Endurance wasn't even their problem. Their problem was they tolerated sin. It had come into the church. They were an active, flourishing, busy, growing church. But they had allowed sin to creep into their lives and into their hearts. They'd become tolerant. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. The woman in the church there, Jezebel, no doubt was a teacher or a leader in the church. Why she's not named, I'm not sure. But I think the, the name Jezebel paints the picture. She was a woman of control. She manipulated those round about her. She introduced pagan sins to them. Just like Jezebel, who was... was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of Tyre, brought all of her pagan Sidonian gods into Israel. And she almost destroyed the nation. She killed a man named Naboth just because he happened to have a vineyard next to the king's palace. And if you remember your history... That palace was not old, it was new. The king just before Ahab, Zimri, had burned the palace around himself and a new one was built. And this one was built in a new spot and it was right next to a vineyard that Naboth's family had owned since the settlement of the land when God gave it to them. In fact, Dr. Chittam, if you remember, we, we stood on the spot and looked up the hill to where that palace sat. It was, it was covered on the outside, literally covered with white marble. They said that it would gleam at night under the moonlight and you would see it for miles around. That's what they wanted. They wanted to prove that the mixture of the pagan gods of Baal with the God Yahweh worked. They were more prosperous. They were more beautiful. They were more wonderful. Sounds like some TV preachers I know that want to show off that they believe somehow wealth is a sign of God's blessing for you. Please don't ever fall into that trap. God blesses incredibly poor people. He, he, he blesses people with money. Sometimes he gives people enough money to destroy themselves. Sometimes he gives them money because he can trust them to bless others. But money has nothing to do with God. Amazingly, Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven or hell, and he probably did that because most people will miss heaven and go to hell because of money. Because they'll set their sights on it. And remember, pagan worship in our world today begins with the worship of money. The sin of Thyatira was tolerating that. They put up with that. God said, I had this against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel and all that she teaches and her seduction and her sin. See, she had, she had this little thing that she taught them that, hey... 
you know what? God, God gives us grace, and, and grace is abounding, and, and that's so important. So the more you sin, the more grace abounds. Therefore, that's fine because the day will come that we'll be out of this world in heaven and we won't have to worry about sin anymore. But until then, do whatever you want to do. Now you say, nobody teaches that today. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. A lot of people believe that you can go and sin and do what you want to and then go either go to the church and go to a priest and confess your sins and, and you're fine. You can go on and, and, and spend another week doing that. And some churches believe if you'll come down to the altar and you'll cry enough and you weep enough and you confess enough, that you'll be forgiven. You know, I understand confession of sin. We're called to do that. But if the power of God within you is not strong enough to cause you to become, the word we use is sanctified, or getting that sin out of your heart and your mind, if it's not strong enough, something's wrong with you. It's not that something's wrong with the salvation you've accepted. No, what you're doing is you're constantly staining the name of Christ over and over and over again. Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome. Most of them had grown up in the Roman Empire, and that's all they knew. They knew of the gluttonous feast and, and, the, and the debauchery that would go on in the temples there. And they were called away from that. But the amazing thing was... He said Christians had developed this attitude that the more you sin, the more you're forgiven, so you experience more grace. Oh, dear friend, let me tell you. You live a life like that, and every lost person watching you will struggle with understanding forgiveness and why it is important. Because they'll say, see you falling for the same sins that every lost person in the world suffers from. You will not stand out as a Christian. You will not stand superior. God wants his example to be unblemished. Jezebel called herself a prophetess, which means she spoke for God. And she spoke boldly. Let me tell you, a lot of people speak boldly about what they believe. Some months ago, uh, a member of this church brought by a friend of hers, wanted me to meet her. It's a new friend she had just become acquainted with, and, and she'd gotten involved uh, with this person. And she said, I want you to meet her because she's very close to God. So she comes in the office, and I asked her, I said, well, tell me a little bit about your life. And she began to talk. Boy, could she talk. Forty-five minutes, she told me her story. And it was a story of failure and restoration, disaster and restoration, uh, loss of everything and restoration. And I, I wanted to say, ma'am, where, where's your victorious spirit in this? Because everything was built around her. And when that lady left with her friend, I prayed with them before they left. That was the only conversation I part I had in the conversation I was listening she was telling me her story and then I prayed for her. And, and 
the friend, the church member that brought her in wanted to talk to me, and I, and I said this to her. I said, may I warn you to stay away from this person? She's not a child of God. She needed a platform to exalt herself, and she's using the Bible to do it, but she's not a Christian. And I hate to have to say that about someone, but God gives us a discerning spirit. We're told to try the spirits to see that they be of God. For many false spirits or, or false Christ have gone out into the world. Amazingly, a week later, the lady came back to me, the church member, crying. And she said, you're right. You're right. It all unfolded. We've got to be careful what we interpret as, as a Christian in the world because we can get entangled with someone like this. And remember, Jezebel had a way of working her way into your life and taking it over. Gnosticism was a name that was used back then for a secret knowledge of God. The Gnostics believed that, that plain old folks, you know, they could understand a certain level of God, but there was a secret knowledge of God that only those who were really special could know. You read Timothy, you'll get real confused with some of the things he wrote because he didn't write those generally for everybody. They were written to a church that was suffering under Gnostic teaching. And over the years, they've had many different ideas. You know, the current one that's, that's probably the most popular, uh, really it's two things. Number one, the idea of healing you from, from, from your illness, whatever it is. And then number two, prosperity, the prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it, whatever you want. These are the two Gnostic teachings today that are so strong. And you know, it, it's always amazed me that faith healers, generally, if they live long enough, they die. Why is that? Why? You know why? Because our body, our flesh is sinful. Jesus died on the cross to save us, meaning that, that the ledger in heaven, we're moved from the, the debit side to the credit side. We're going to heaven. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But from that point forward, we struggle with the same sins. And as we struggle and overcome these sins, we are examples to other people. They see us growing and changing and maturing and coming closer to Christ. And then they are drawn to that. But in this teaching, you spend your life struggling between how much of the world can you have and still be a Christian and how much of Jesus do you have to have to know you're okay. And people struggle with that. Remember the commitment that they were called to make in Thyatira. That is so important. He said, the one who, who conquers and who keeps his works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and you will rule with, with God. You see, the struggle that we go through to be a Christian is tough. It's hard. When you, when you move outside the, the, the shelter of home, you're a young person, you go away to college, or you go out for your first career, and you're away from home, that's when the struggle sometimes begins. Because a, a community of faith 
is important because of the accountability it gives. I played sports all through high school. Football, five years. Baseball, four years. There are several people in your life in sports that really matter to you. And one of them, of course, is the coach that's always yelling at you. Uh, thank goodness I'm not in high school playing sports now because I would have had the coronavirus the first thing because we had a baseball coach that spit every time he spoke. And he was always right in your face. And I can just remember guys there kind of dodging him when he was yelling. But he held us accountable. And he pushed us beyond our comfortable limits. And when you lose that accountability in the family of God, you're in trouble. Because who is there to speak boldly to you? The Holy Spirit speaks as you open your heart to the Holy Spirit. But sometimes you need flesh and blood there in your face reminding you. And that's why friends are so important. That's why family matters. That's why that circle of faith is so significant in our lives. Be that person that does not find yourself off on the sidelines with a Jezebel that's teaching you something other than what Christ has said. Martin Luther was an unusual man. If you go back and read some of the writings that he wrote, he was not always a very tactful or, or, or very kind person. He was very blunt. Uh, one student, when he was an old man, came to him and asked him, they said, what was God doing before he created the world? And he matter-of-factly said he was cutting switches to beat fools who asked questions like that. I think the boy regretted ever asking him that. But Martin Luther gave a very graphic description of the activities of Satan. He was asked one time how he overcame the devil, and he replied by saying this. He said, when the devil comes knocking on the door of my heart, he said, I send Jesus to the door. And he said, Jesus tells Satan, Martin does not live here anymore. I dwell here, now leave. What a, what a powerful image of how you deal with temptation. Too many people play with temptation. They're flattered by temptation. You know, wow, they want me to go out and hang out with them, knowing they're the wrong people to hang out with. Or you're tempted to get involved in something that, that may be prosperous, but is also illegal. That's as much of a sin as anything else. What do you do when temptation comes knocking? Who do you send to answer the door? I guess that's what I'm asking you this morning. Are you willing, when you're confronted with temptation, to say, Lord, you get this because I can't handle it. Dear friend, if you'll do that, you not only will have a better life here in this world, you will have a life in heaven that's absolutely out of this world forever. And you'll spend eternity thanking God that you were faithful. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit guides and guards. Yet we have to submit to you, Lord, we have to allow you to guide and guard. We have to 
daily say, yes, Lord, I trust you. And I pray this morning as we consider the Jezebel spirit and how that spirit is alive and well in the world today, and it haunts many churches, denominational groups, and Christians often that have not learned to say immediately, Lord, you take this. I can't handle it. And I pray that, that someone within the sound of my voice would say today that they're trusting God to guide them into 2021, knowing that there, there will be temptations, there'll be frustrations, there'll be anxieties. But you, Father, through your Holy Spirit, can protect us and guard over us. I pray that we'll trust you. And I pray that this year would be a beginning of a new commitment to you. Father, speak to someone that needs to come to this altar and make a new commitment to you. Knowing that 2021 is a year of opportunity, but it's also a year of concern. Are we willing to be the witness for you? Or are we going to fall in line with the average person? Are we going to be outstanding in the kingdom? Or are we going to be just standing out somewhere for this year? Lord, guide us and guard us, and may we say yes to you. For it's in your holy name we do pray. Amen.